good morning, good morning, good morning. Well, we are on the last Sunday of our series on legacy. Open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2. And so every week we've been talking about the legacy that you are going to give to the generations after you. Uh, Today in this final message, we are going to be talking specifically about the legacy you receive. Um, I want to bring you up to speed. I want to define legacy for you. Legacy is at least two things. Um, Number one, legacy is the dominant narrative of your life. So what we've said is um, when you die, that Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter meal where your family comes together and they tell stories about you, um, that starts to become the narrative of your life. Um, After your memorial service, people go home and they remember you and they tell stories of you. These stories live on and this becomes one part of your legacy. But there's another part of your legacy we're going to focus on this morning and it's this. Your legacy is the lasting impact of your life on another soul. Our souls have the imprint of our ancestors. That there have been decisions that have, made, have been made long before you and I were alive that go back generations. And every one of those generations accumulate into our mother and our father and they come together and then if we are not raised by our mom and dad, maybe we are uh, adopted, right? Um, all of these decisions, all of these lives come together and they make an imprint on our soul and it's not just DNA. Yes, you have their blood on one level, but it's also their decisions and their culture and all of this comes together and it creates a deep and profound impact on your soul. No one, though, leaves a greater imprint on your soul than your mom or dad. Nobody. I'll tell you, I've said this up front multiple times. I am humbled and blown away by the fact that my children's primary concept of who God is is formed by me. That the way they emotionally and practically understand God, they learn from how I love them and train them and discipline them and teach them and put my arms around them, that they learn to relate to God primarily. This is their first experience where God is forming in them something deeper than I could understand. And it's easy to go about life thinking or feeling, well, they're going to be fine. It's not that big of a deal. I'll just attend to my kids later, not realizing that every single season of our life, we're leaving this lasting and permanent imprint on the souls of our kids. Some of you, uh, and I've talked to many of you, have had terrible, terrible moms and dads. I mean, I am in awe of the stories that I hear. And you um, come into this world in a massively broken home, and then some of you have carried this brokenness with you for decades and decades. Um, I'm also amazed, I'm so blessed, because I get to see uh, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and great-grandmas and great-grandpas pass the faith from one generation to another in this church. Um, The amount, the number of three-generation families that attend Village Church, it's so amazing, it's so encouraging, and it is a beautiful picture. If you grew up with a mom and dad who loved Jesus, broken as they might be, imperfect as they might be, you are like 2% of, 1% of the world, okay, number one. And you are blessed beyond anything you can imagine. And then the majority of us are somewhere in the middle. Maybe mom and dad had a nominal faith or a haphazard faith or something. And, and our, our upbringing was just kind of confusing. But um, here's what I want to do. I'll answer two questions. And here's the first one. In your notes, can Jesus redeem my parents' failed legacy? Can Jesus redeem my parents' failed legacy? And some of you 
God has called you to be a hinged generation. God has called you to be the first generation of Christians who no longer take the path of your ancestors, but you have pivoted, and on a hinge, you are now going in a completely different direction. And your generation, your family, you, mom, dad, you, single person, what you are doing is gonna reverberate for generations, and you are beginning to reverse the negative effects and the negative decisions that landed on your soul, and your children are not gonna have to bear the same weight of brokenness and burden that you bear. That is an incredible privilege and many of you in this room have had to be that generation. This morning, we're going to look at Joshua's generation, um, who was truly a hinged generation. Now, i got to give you some context. Um, some of you are newer to the Bible, so let's just give you a little bit of a picture of what's happening in the Bible so far. You guys remember the book of Genesis? You know this book? God creates the world. The nation of Israel is created, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. We get to the book of Exodus, and you remember Exodus has to leave Egypt. The people of God, the Jews, Abraham's offspring, they are in um, slavery in Egypt for how many years? 400, good job. Uh, They are in Israel for a long time. They are in a pagan nation. They are slaves. They have limited ability to worship. And this culture in in, in Egypt massively forms their worship, their understanding of God. They have these stories of men they've never met before who apparently knew God and loved God and walked with God. And now for 400 years, they've been in slavery. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy um, traces this generation as God brings them out of Egypt into the wilderness. <laughs> Tricked you. Good, good. Just say Jesus and you're going to be good. Jesus, right? Jesus. <laughs> and so this book, these books trace the story of God's people in Israel. Now the book of Joshua, Joshua, um, his generation were the ones under 20 years old that grew up in the wilderness, okay? You remember that in the wilderness, what happened? God got really, really upset with all the people of Israel. We're gonna see why in a little bit, get more depth there. Um, But God killed functionally all the people. He let them all die in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. They roamed around for 40 years and inevitably all of them died except for their children who were under 20 years old. Remember that? This is Joshua's generation. Joshua might be a little bit older, but he was one of the only guys, him and Caleb, who were gonna be brought into the promised land who were older than that. Everybody else in Joshua's generation, they grew up in the wilderness. Some of them were two, three, four, five, six years old in Egypt when their families were released. They came into the wilderness. They saw um, the disobedience of their parents, the discipline of God on their families. Um, Joshua was their leader. In the book of Joshua, this is the story of Joshua and his generation who go into the promised land, and they, um, by God's power and God's grace, take over this land, destroy, um, we'll say, very wicked and evil tribal communities, and they take this land as their own because God gave it to them. Then we get to the book of Judges, and here's where we're at, Judges chapter 2. Joshua is about to die. Technically, he dies like three times in the book um, because they just keep recounting his death to make the point. So he dies, I think, twice at the end of Joshua, and now he's going to die again at the beginning of Judges. And these books overlap just a little bit, so it's not contradictory. It's just telling the story in different parts. And so Joshua and his generation, they're going to die, and we're going to watch Israel's downward spiral. So you get where we're at in the book. We're in Judges chapter 2. Joshua and his generation are about to die, and there's going to be a new generation that takes over the leadership and the culture of that time. Now, Judges chapter 2, verse 1, something really weird happens. You don't expect it. The angel of the Lord shows up. 
You may not believe me. Some of you are going to have to go home and research this because it's going to sound a little bit too um, interesting to be true. When the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, I'll just give you the conclusion, is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born. He is eternally pre-existent, which means he has always existed. There never was a time when the Son was not. He has always existed. And you see in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, or God himself, pops up in a number of occasions. When the angel of the Lord pops up, you need to listen and pay very close attention because Jesus is entering into human history in these pivotal moments, and he's going to do something significant. And so we find here is that Joshua and his entire generation are being gathered together, and the angel of the Lord is going to give some very, very concerning news to this generation. And so here's what it says. Now, the angel of the Lord, he went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Verse 1 continues, and he said, now here's how you know this isn't just some random messenger, because the angel takes personal responsibility for um, freeing God's people from Egypt. Who freed God's people from Egypt? God. And the angel of the Lord regularly speaks as if he is God. Why? Because he is God. And the angel of the Lord said this, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant, my promise with you. Keep going, verse three, two. And he goes on and says, and you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. And then here's what he says. What is this you have done? So it's interesting, in a couple verses, here's what we're going to see. Joshua and his entire generation, they follow the Lord. But I want you to notice this. Did they follow the Lord purely? The answer is no. Joshua and his generation grow up in the wilderness of Israel or the wilderness before they came into the promised land. They were brought into this land, and they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. Here's what God wanted them to do. He was very clear. He says, I want you to destroy every single altar to every false god, period. No questions asked. And so the Israelites, Joshua's generation, they come into the land, and they did not do it, which begs this question, why didn't they get rid of the gods? Does that ever plague you? How can a generation of people who love God allow the kind of idol worship that was going on in these communities? How can they just overlook it? How can they let their kids grow up in a world where this kind of stuff is happening? I'm going to give you a couple reasons. Number one, you have to remember that um, Israel lived, the people of God lived in Egypt for 400 years. Was the Egyptian religion polytheistic or monotheistic? Say polytheistic. There were multiple gods. It was multiple gods, very driven um, by sensuality, idolatry, worship, right? This was all they ever knew. And so these people, these Joshua's generation, their heart, heart culture that they grew up in is polytheistic, right? They had heard stories of a monotheistic one god, Yahweh, right? But their primary experience with religion was a polytheistic, pagan, hypersexualized religion that did grotesque things, okay? And so you got to understand, this generation grows up, and they go into the wilderness, and some of the first experiences that they have are their religious leaders building golden calves to Egyptian gods and then doing incredibly despicable sexual things around those, those idols. 
And so here's what I want you to get. Their heart culture is not monotheism. God, the one true God, keeps inserting himself into their life and saying, I am the only God. That's why God has to keep reiterating, there is only one God, I am God, there is no other gods, because he's constantly battling a polytheistic culture. This is their heart culture. This is, there's a pull to this that is stronger, I think, than what most of us realize. Now verse three, here's what happens. Jesus says, the angel of the Lord, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns to your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Verse four, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. This generation knew firsthand what it meant if God did not regularly and miraculously intervene in their life. I want you to go back in time. I want you to imagine you're eight years old and your family, one day your mom and dad, they come in and they pull you out of your home and you are fleeing with a million of your countrymen out of, out of your homeland, Egypt. And you finally find yourself at the um, edge of this huge sea and there are hundreds of thousands of Egyptian warriors who have a personal grudge against you and your God and your nation because their firstborn children have all just landed dead. Pharaoh at the helm wanting to destroy every single one of you. You're eight years old, you're 10 years old, you're four years old, you're 15 years old and you're sitting there in this moment and you are sitting in front of a sea and then all of a sudden at once this sea opens up before you. God intervenes. You pass through. It closes on these armies and you are miraculously saved. Now I want you to imagine this entire generation that go into this promised land and battle after battle after battle after battle, miracle after miracle. God fights for them and he performs miracles in their behalf. Everything they have is because God fought for them. They have always been outnumbered. They have always been the weaker people. And now we find themselves in this situation where God finally looks at them and says, I will not drive them out anymore. I'm done. I'm walking away. I told you the rules. Get rid of the idols. And if you don't do this, then I'm going to be done. I'm going to walk away. And that's exactly what he did. And so verse 5 says, they called the name of that place Bochum. It means weepers. This is a place where they just wailed and they wept because they personally understood what this meant. They sacrificed there to the Lord. We don't know if it was out of worship or desperation. Whatever it was, it wasn't going to change God's mind. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to take his own inheritance, to take possession of the land. Verse 7, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Isn't that a funny line in light of what you just heard? And here's the point. They changed. They pivoted. They hinged. They started to do something different here. It's not that they were terrible, terrible, terrible. It's just that they didn't really fully give their hearts to the Lord. It was conditional. They were still tampering and flirting with these false religions and these false idols. And so there's this hinge point, right? But this, this, is, this is where I think it's just really meaningful. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. This line is so important to understanding what they experienced growing up because firsthand, they saw God work. A couple things. What, what family legacy did Joshua's generation receive in the wilderness? Number one, they received firsthand God experiences. This was a generation who could grow up and say, I saw God work personally. They saw firsthand the Red Sea manna. We could go on and on. They, they saw God lead by fire, 
by night and cloud by day. They saw Moses on the mountain and the thunder and the lightning, the Ten Commandments. They saw Moses glowing. They saw God's character on full display. They saw mercy and grace and wrath and judgment and kindness and holiness. They saw God's discipline. They literally watched an entire generation before them die in the desert, functionally homeless. I want you to listen to Numbers chapter 14, and this is what God is saying to Joshua's parents' generation. This is a a picture of the legacy that they're receiving. Numbers 14, verse 28. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Imagine being a kid. Imagine being seven, and this verdict is given over your mom and dad. Can you start to put yourself in the shoes of Joshua's generation? Not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. And verse 31 says this, but your little ones, 19 years and old and younger, who you said would become a prey to the Egyptians, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Do any of you feel like you have suffered for the faithlessness of your mom and your dad. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me, In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Whew. Is that heavy? This was the verdict given to the parents of Joshua's generation in their hearing. Imagine you hearing that your mom and dad are going to die, and you hear how they're going to die, and God himself calls them wicked, and he says he is displeased. Number one, they saw firsthand God experiences. Number two, they received a dysfunctional spiritual leadership. They come out of the land. We've already talked about this, but just to give you the full weight of what happened, uh, Moses goes away under the mountain, um, and Aaron is the high priest, supposed to worship God in purity and holiness. He gathers gold from all the people of Israel, builds two calves, which are um, really disgusting sexual gods, images of gods um, from Egypt. Moses comes down the mountain, and the people are literally having a mass orgy. That's what they're doing. It's vile, and it's disgusting, and this is the nature and the demands of the gods of Egypt. And so, of course, a holy God, I mean, could you imagine spending 40 days in God's presence in righteousness and seeing purity and holiness and perfection right before your eyes, coming down a mountain and seeing the complete opposite extreme of vileness? And these kids grew up watching their spiritual leaders do this. Do you not think that that is going to have a devastating effect on them spiritually? The answer is absolutely. Number three, they received dysfunctional family patterns. They saw massive hypocrisy in their families, and they saw complete compromise in God's word. This, this is why we call this a failed legacy. I wouldn't even call this like a lukewarm Christian home. I would just call this the non-Christian home. 
So there's a fundamentally human challenge I think that Joshua's generation is going to face. It's a challenge many of you have faced. It's I'm torn between who I know God is and the pull to repeat the errors of my ancestors. You ever feel that? Like I know who God is and yet what my mom and dad did to other people and to each other and to me there's this pull in me that is stronger than I can probably communicate to repeat these very same patterns and things. For those who have pretty dysfunctional backgrounds, for those who did not grow up in a Christian home, uh, there are three goals, there are three musts, there are three things you have to do. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give everybody like, an easy thing that's going to be like, hey, it's going to fix all your problems and your broken legacy and all the junk that you've received from your mom and your dad, right? It's all going to be okay because if you just do these three things, right, healing is going to happen in about six hours or six weeks, right? Is that the way this works? The answer is no. My desire is simple. My desire is to help you do one of these three things, wherever you're at in this process, to fast forward some of this process, God willing to help you do things better. The first thing you have to do is evaluate. It's interesting. Many people do not think intentionally about what they receive from their mom and their dad. They don't look at it for what it is, and if they do in this desire to make their mom and dad better or worse than they are, they hyper-exaggerate or under-exaggerate what really happened. There is value in looking at the good and the sinful of what your mom and dad have done, calling it what it is. And I would also exhort you probably not to their face, <laughs> right? This is you and God. This is you, God, and maybe a counselor and your spouse, right? These are private conversations, but there has to be an honest evaluation. If you are not able to call out what it is, you are going to likely repeat it. Now, here's the deal. Some of you will call out the sins done, but not the things motivating those sins. Some of you grew up with a really angry mom or dad, an abusive mom or dad, and so you say, I will never abuse. The problem is, what led them to that? What were the internal things going on? And this is where you need to get below the action and identify the heart, virtue, or vice. And you need to be able to look at that and say, this is what was driving them. Number two, mirror. Um, nobody, I, I just believe nobody's like comes out of the womb being a great husband or wife. Nobody comes out of the womb like, I'm just going to be an amazing parent, right? What you learn about handing off legacies, what you learn is that you have to be able to find someone to mirror. And some of you, you have read books, you've, you've had mentors, you've had moms and dads who have mirrored this great. Some of you, you're able to look at your mom and your dad, and you're able to look at them, and you're able to say, I want to be just like them. And there might be one or two things where you say, I don't want that part of my family heritage to pass down. And by the way, you might change all the things that you receive from your parents' heritage, and what are your kids going to do? They're going to look at you, and they're going to have to do the same evaluation because one thing that is common from every generation to the next is sinfulness and brokenness. My kids are going to grow up, and they're going to look into my home, into my life, and they're going to have to say, Dad had some serious struggles, and I will not let these specific things be passed down through me to the next generation. The hope is that as one generation fights for the next, that sin becomes less and less potent from one generation to the next, that these big things that corrupted generations before us no longer have this corrupting power as it goes from one generation to another. And then here's the third word. You have to fight. If you will not fight, you will repeat or not make better what you received. 
And this is the reality that kids have the tendency, adult kids, by the way, we're not talking about little kids, we're talking about children, right? Have the tendency to reenact and to double what their parents have done to them. They have the tendency to do this with virtues and with vices, by the way. And so there has to be this intentional fight. There are gonna be a few, maybe two, three, or four vices that you say, I refuse to let these go through me as a conduit to the next generation, and you're gonna have to fight really, really, really hard. Number two in your notes, can Jesus redeem my parents' lukewarm Christian legacy? What is the answer? Absolutely. By the way, um, I don't care how awesome of a parent you are. I, don't, like, I could sit here and tell you all the great things I do as a dad. My parenting is broken, and there are going to be and have been seasons where I have not fought for my kids. I have gone on autopilot, and some of you or my wife have had to step in and fight in my absence. And there are going to be seasons where my wife is in the same circumstance and has been, and some of you and I will have to fight for them in her absence. This is, this is real, and so there, there's a, a part of this when I say lukewarm, it doesn't mean they were always lukewarm. For some of you, your parents really didn't get right with God till you were out of the house, and so this legacy that informed you and shaped you and imprinted onto your soul, um, it's actually not who they are, but it's who they were, and it still affects you. And so I just want to start with this question. Can Jesus redeem my parents' lukewarm legacy? Now, you've heard me say this, and this is where I need you to pay very close attention because I'm going to turn our sermon series a little bit on its head. You've heard me say this. Well, one generation assumes, the second neglects, and the third rejects. You're familiar with this, right? This was the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the story of David um, and Solomon and Mephibosheth. It's the story of many of you in this room. It's the story of those of you who grew up um, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And this, this, is, this has been true for many of you. And then here's what's happened. There's been a generation of 40s, 50s, and some 60s who felt like the rules changed, but you didn't have vocabulary for it. You felt like, why is it harder to hand the faith off to this generation than it was in generations past? I'm gonna give you the answer. Because this applies where the Judeo-Christian context is dominant. This applies in the Old Covenant when there were good or decent or semi-okay leaders who controlled the culture of the day. This worked well in America, which was primarily Judeo-Christian and did not abandon fundamentally Judeo-Christian ethics by and large. But then something started to change in the 90s, didn't it? And then something started to change with your kids, didn't it? And then something started to change with your grandkids as you're watching, didn't it? I'm going to tell you why, because the rules have changed. And here's the new rule. Well, one generation assumes, the second rejects. This is the new rule. This, this is why we are talking about legacy. Because what you grew up with, the rules and the culture and the experiences, we are, nobody is playing by those rules anymore. So here's what happens in your home, right? What you assume, your haphazard approach to either your faith or passing on the faith will almost necessarily demand that your children will not neglect the faith but full-on reject it. And they, here's the process. It starts in high school and junior high in the quiet places. And then in college, they live it out when you're not around, 
And then when they get to, uh, we'll say, 20s and early 30s, they slowly start to dismantle in their brain the entire rubric that they grew up with. And then ultimately, by their 30s or 40s, they are agnostic, angry atheists, or just basically disinterested. And you'll watch them on Facebook because they'll be the ones ranting about Christians in every political season you can find. Okay? Do you see that? That's the story. That's the trend. That's the reality of what is happening in the trajectory of legacy and faith generations and passing this stuff on. New rules are, new rules are at play. And we're actually going to, I want to show you how these rules play themselves out. Now, I want to make one thing clear to you. You could have been the greatest mom or dad on the planet. Does that ensure your children will love Jesus? Please say no. No. You could have been the most haphazard parent on the planet. Does that mean your children 100% are destined to never walk with Jesus? The answer is absolutely not. These are what we call proverbs. They're general truths and general realities. And by God's grace and mercy, they do not always play themselves out. Um, some of us in this room have spent decades haphazardly approaching the faith, and God in his mercy intervened in our kids' lives. Some of our kids, they actually had these really traumatic experiences in their life, spiritually, relationally, physically, sexually, while we were disengaged. And God in his mercy walked with them and healed them in these seasons. And so as we talk about this, um, the point of saying this is to warn you and not to condemn you. So let's see what happens in this generation. Joshua's generation dies. Verse 8, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Whew, that's old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Tinnahares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the generation, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. What does that mean? They died. And there arose another generation after them. This is one of the most striking lines for me, by the way. This just blows my mind who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Okay, 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 okay. If I saw God part the Red Sea, you better believe it. We're going to be sitting at the dinner table, and I'm going to be like, like, X, L, V, my kids' initials, right? That's what I call them. I call them letters. X, L, V. Dude, I got to tell you about what God did at the Red Sea. Oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. We were starving, and man, I got to tell you about the fire by night and the cloud by day. Like, what was possibly happening in this generation, in Joshua's generation, right? That they served the Lord all their days, but their children somehow did not know what the Lord had done for them. You know what they were? Distracted. That's it. They were busy. That's at least how I translate into 21st century terms. Something happened in their faith where it was their faith. You know that lie that says, it's got to be, you know, it's my faith. I don't want to impose on my children. Blah, impose on them. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the truth. Pass on the stories of God's faithfulness. Tell them about who he is and how he's intervened in your life. Tell them about your brokenness and how you've royally screwed up and God healed and restored you. And if you're not fully through that process, tell them you're still in the middle of it. Let them see God at work in your life. Tell them the stories of when you came to Christ. Tell them how God provided you, when you need, for you when you needed him the most. So, I don't know what happened here, but it's like they don't even know the stories. They assumed. Let me just put it that way. The new rules in pagan hostile cultural context is what one generation assumes the second rejects. This drives me nuts, right? Because there's some of you who you're, you're reading this and you're like, oh no, I loved God. I, I served. I read the Bible. I'm going to heaven. God could look at me and say, you love me. 
And yet your kids know very little of your story and of your faith and of what God did in your life and how amazing he has been to you and how he has redeemed you and how he has saved you. They know very little of it personally from your mouth. And this is what is happening. In these hostile climates and cultures, if you take this route to parenting, statistically overwhelming, your kids will not just assume the faith. They will not just neglect the faith. They will full-on walk away from it. In hostile and alluring cultures, what happens when one generation assumes? You want to see? Verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. Do you see these verbs, by the way? They were not coerced. They were lured. They bought hook, line, and sinker into the entire lie of the pagan religions. What, what could be so alluring about these religions that would make them abandon their faith and their family heritage completely? I mean, this just wasn't like this. They went from a people who were trying to serve God to literally worshiping at the false altars of pagan religions. This is a huge shift. I hope you see this. And one of the reasons that I think this is in here is because what you need to understand is because Joshua's generation didn't get rid of the idols, the dominant culture and the dominant pull amongst Joshua's generation was not monotheism. The dominant culture and pull was toward these alluring false religions. That's what you need to understand. Yes, there was a group of faithful people, but the culture at large was still powerfully pagan, polytheistic, sensual, and alluring. And it was too much for these kids to handle because they knew nothing of who God was. They did not know what God had done. They saw a people who loved God, but even those people seemed to be hypocrites. Let me, just, let me just tell you why. Here's where paganism, worship of Baal, worship, worship of Ashtoreth, and we'll just say secular culture today, secular humanism, this um, approach that the world is taking, why they're um, similarly alluring. You can come to God on your terms and not his. Forget you, God, I know what your Bible says, but I will, I will approach you on my terms. I will call you what I want. You can be whatever gender I assign to you. I will make you in my image. And when you are convenient for me, I will worship you. You can satisfy your every desire and you are celebrated for it. If you have an impulse, there is a God for you to worship. Now, we don't call them gods. We don't go to their churches. Um, What they are is they're the gods of pleasure, of gender, of sexuality. They're the gods of indulgence, the god of substance, whatever it is, right? Similar gods, different names from Egypt to Canaan to 21st century America. So here's the warning. I want to give you a warning for those of you who've received a godly, lukewarm, or otherwise legacy. It seems, as we get to this text, that God takes it really personally when you receive a godly, even a broken godly legacy, and you walk away from it. I want you to just feel God's emotions in this text. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. I mean, he didn't just, catch this, he didn't just walk away, he gave them over. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord, he wasn't just neutral, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. I mean, you take your God concept and put that verse in it. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. 
I want to close with this question. Can Jesus redeem my parents' failed legacy? Am I doomed to repeat their errors? What is the answer? No. We see with Joshua's generation, they were still broken, but they hinged from a grumbling, bitter, angry, complaining, polytheistic, perverse generation. They hinged to serving God. Now, were they perfect? No. And by the way, those of you who have hinged, are you perfect? Please say no. <laughs> this is where you say no. No. But they hinged. And, but here's the problem. If you hinge but don't fight, they're going to lose. And so some of you, you've grown up, you are the generation who grew up with a mom and a dad who loved Jesus. Maybe they weren't perfect. Whatever level of brokenness, irrelevant for the moment. And there's a warning in this. If you have received a godly Christian legacy, I did not say perfect. If you've received a legacy where a mom and dad did the best that they could or knew how to, because I'll be honest, I believe the reason most dads and moms don't fight is because nobody told them to, nobody told them how to, and nobody warned them. They just did what they've always done. But if you are living and growing up in that home, there is a significant warning for you. God takes it personally. When on a silver platter, he gives to you a godly legacy, the gospel and the word of God, you shun it and walk away. It's a very powerful thing, and we see this in Scripture. Three, three words again, evaluating. What if you have a mom and dad who, um, they do, they have a godly legacy, broken, it's lukewarm at times? Uh, I want to give you a couple things. Number one, honor what they have done. Honor it. As you evaluate what they've done, you have to be able to honor them, honor them to their face, Honor them in writing. Honor them to your children and to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Do not let the legacy of their faithfulness die with you and your kids. Identify again with clarity their weaknesses, but give them an incredible amount of grace because one day you will have little hoodlums looking at you and they will say, you should have. <laughs> Comes full circle with every generation, right? But give them tons of grace. Maybe they weren't able to give you everything you needed mirror mirror. Find someone who's functional and healthy and strong where you need to see strength. If you're a mom and dad and your children want to be mentored by somebody else or want to go have dinner at another family's house, do not take it personally. Invite it. Encourage them because your family and you as a human will never, ever, ever be able to give your children everything they need it is your job to surround them with other people and relationships so they can start to see health in so many different ways. As a mom and dad, one of the best things you can do is own your failures. Identify the core sins so your kids don't have to go to counseling later and figure out how to do that. And then fight. The fight for those of us who have received a godly legacy, lukewarm or broken as it might be, is that we are prone to the pull of culture. And we need to fight for our own souls because it's that powerful.